It is completely without error. It is completely authoritative. And it is completely sufficient. Acts, chapter 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, He knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word He had spoken, that they would not see His face again. They accompanied Him to the ship. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for its blessing upon our hearts. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would take this Your Word and that You would imprint it upon our hearts that we might know You in a greater and deeper way. 
and that we might therefore know ourselves and our need of you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. What would you do if you knew you only had one last chance to speak to someone? If right now I told you you had one last chance to speak to your wife, or to your husband, or your children, or your parents, many things, I imagine, would run throughout your mind. Perhaps even a great many trivial things. I really enjoyed that vacation last year. You know, you really should be a little bit more careful with the bank account. You know, the windows, they need fixing. But I imagine they would run through your mind and they would not be the words of your mouth or your heart. Because what you would do in your mind is kind of like in a filing cabinet. You would go through each of the folders in that cabinet and pick out the very most important things. You wouldn't worry about squeaking windows. You wouldn't worry about past vacations. You would declare your love for them. You would declare your dreams for them. You would think about the most important things in life. Now imagine if we had a word from God about what was most important in the church. If only we could have a minister, an apostle, who would know that it was his last time with the church, then we would really see what's important in our ministry. Well, praise be to the Lord that we have that here this morning. We have the last words, the, to use a euphemism, swan song of the Apostle Paul to his beloved church at Ephesus. It was a church where he spent three years. It was a church where he sent his prized pupil, Timothy, to pastor over them. And now he is speaking to their leaders about what is most important in the Christian life and ministry. And he has this morning three things, I think, from this text for them. First, he'll speak to them about a calling. Second, he'll speak to them about a command. And third, he will speak to them a comforting. A calling that He has known and He desires them to know. A command about how they are to conduct themselves in the church of God. And a comforting for them that they can carry on this work when He is gone. Well, let's begin then by looking at Paul's description of a calling for them. Paul starts, before he gives them any advice, before he gives them any commands, he begins by laying out what they have seen Him do in their midst. He describes for them what a calling of a minister is. What a calling of an elder is. And it's first and foremost a calling to serve. Look at this here in verse 18. He says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Now, the language there is very vivid. It's traveling language. It's as soon as he shows up in town, he dwelt among them. He lived. He made his home among them. You see, the first thing we need to understand about ministry in our church, about the gospel ministry, is that it requires us not to minister 
for people, but with people. We do not stand and do things for our children. We are with our children. We are not here for our community. We are with our community. We must live among each other. This is a community. The church is a people of God. It is not an organization. It is an organism. And Paul does this from the very first. He didn't wait to see the lay of the land. He didn't wait to see which party he should align himself with. He didn't wait to see where the troubles would be that he could fix. No, as soon as he was there, he was there among them. And he did this intentionally. You see that at the beginning of verse 18? He says, you yourselves know. It's very emphatic. There is no mistaking that Paul was there with the people. Now, this is something that I think needs stressing because there is much in the modern current that cuts against this. You may be surprised to know that one of the ubiquitous pieces of advice, that's advice that's everywhere, kids, one of the pieces of advice that's everywhere at seminary for future ministers and especially their wives is this. You know, you need to be very careful. Don't make close friends in the church. Don't open up to people at church. There might be other ministers in town or others you can confide in, but you need to keep your distance because you might get hurt. Now, you'll be pleased to know, and I hope you know from the first day I've been among you and Katie, that Deb and I completely rejected that advice and shook our heads and wondered why in the world would someone say that? This is our church, too. Children's church. These are our friends. And I think that's how Paul viewed ministry. I think that's how ministers should view ministry. There is a buy-in. There is a camaraderie. There is a togetherness about a church that should be true not just of ministers, but of elders, of deacons, of teachers. We are all together in this ministry. And Paul shows that in real life and reminds not only the Ephesian elders, but us. He's in the context of real people. And one of the dangers of that is when you're around people a lot, they get to see who you really are. Who knows you best? It's very likely your spouse. Maybe to a little lesser extent your children. You can't hide, you can't put on a mask 24 hours a day from your spouse. They know the real you. And so if you are going to live together in a covenant community, you must be real. And that drives us to the cross and it drives us to following after God's will. And so Paul shows that this calling to serve, if it's in the context of real people, must be done with humility. He says, I was among you serving the Lord with all humility. Not just some humility, but all humility. Paul is trying to make an emphatic point here. The point is that the work was not about Paul. It was not about the size of the church that Paul could build. It was not about the number of converts that Paul could find. It was not about the number of laws in society that Paul could get changed. It was about the Lord's work and the Lord's will. Now, lest you think this is something only that ministers like Paul or perhaps leaders like elders need to do, Paul reminded 
the church at large that this is how we are to live. It is part and parcel of the Christian life. He will write later to this same church in Ephesus that they are to live with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. He will write to the Philippians that they are to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than themselves. You see, humility is part and parcel of the Christian life. And this should not surprise us because I think the greatest danger to the church does not come from ignorance. It does not come from a lack of resources. The greatest danger to the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages is pride. It is, of course, the great sin that we know Satan partook of. Thinking that we are better than ourselves. Thinking that we do not need the Lord. Thinking that we do not need God's grace. Paul reminds us that we must serve among each other with humility. We must also serve among each other when it costs. You see, he says, not only did I serve with all humility, he says, I served with tears and with trials. Now, in my sanctified imagination, I don't see Paul as the weepy preacher. You know, that preacher that, not just at a specific heartfelt passage of the Scripture, but two or three times every Sunday breaks down in tears in the pulpit. I don't see Paul as that kind of guy. You know, early before he was converted, he was breathing out threats and riding to cities to persecute people. He's going from city to city. He's escaping over walls, on boats. He's not exactly a wallflower. And so I think we need to see here that it is not just those who are given to, to weeping or to being teary-eyed, that, that tears are a part of our life. It is okay to weep. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you, especially young men, need to hear that. That there is nothing unmanly about tears at an appropriate juncture. And the Apostle Paul had opportunity for tears. He was beaten. He was run out of town. He saw people who he was sure were walking after Jesus Christ abandon the faith. He saw the Gospel blasphemed. He saw his Lord blasphemed. His ministry had a cost, a personal cost. It had a cost because he loved the Gospel and he loved Jesus Christ and he loved his people. There is a special sadness that occurs in a church and especially amongst leadership of a church, especially with a pastor. Because I don't have the depth of sadness that each of you do with your sorrows. But I partake of the sorrows of 40 or 50 families. And that's true of the church as well. Think about this past time that we had at the turn of the year. And I've seen that so many families were visited with difficulties, trials and sadness. And it didn't just affect those families. It affected all of us. We all wept because we're together. We're a covenant community. We serve one another. And so... 
I think there's also a word of warning here that you need to Christian. You need to be willing to put up, to bear with costs. You'll never be able to escape them. They will come. You need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ to carry you across Jordan. You need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ to lift you up and bear you through what you don't think you can get through. You need to trust Jesus to get others through what you wish you could carry them through. Real life ministry, real life church has costs. This is a calling to serve, but it is also a calling to preach, Paul says. He lived among them from day to day for years. But in verse 20, he tells us that he did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. The first thing that we see about Paul's calling to preach is that it occurred everywhere. And this again shouldn't surprise us. This is the Apostle Paul. You stick him in a synagogue, he preaches Jesus. You kick him out of the synagogue, he sets up shop in a gymnasium and preaches Jesus. You chain him to a soldier, he preaches Jesus to the soldier. There is nothing you can do to take the gospel preacher out of Paul. And I think this is also a lesson for us. Because if you are sitting here thinking today that you can be a Christian, that you can live the Christian life here and at Bible study, and on Sunday night, and not take it out with you into your workplace, into your home, into your neighborhood, into your hobbies, then you are mistaken. Because you see, we are called to preach Christ, to present Christ, to live lives that make people ask questions everywhere we go. In public. In private. Just as Paul has done. Paul went out and he was not afraid to declare the Lord Jesus Christ even when it would set out a riot. But he didn't just have a public ministry. He had a private ministry as well. He went from house to house. And this is where we gain our theology of family visitation. As he went from house to house, the great pastor Richard Baxter pastoring in a a little out-of-the-way place in England, used this text, this second half of Acts 20, to set upon himself to visit and catechize his whole congregation, to make sure that not just in public but in private they heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they knew in private that they were called to close with Christ, to believe upon Him. This is my calling. This is your calling. You have opportunities in private that your ministers do not. You are called to live a life that shows forth Jesus Christ, to speak, do words in season, in both public and in private. And you can't choose, pick and choose, whom you will direct that to. Do you see what Paul says? Not only did he preach in all places, he preached to all people. He says he testified both to Jews and to Greeks. Now, I think this is one of these short phrases that if we're reading our Bible quickly, we we pass over it without thinking all of the context that's in it. We think, well, yeah, Paul, Greeks, they were living there, and Jews. I imagine that that would make sense. 
But what I want you to remember is that when he did not shrink back from preaching to Jews, it was these same Jews that plotted to kill him. He reminded us of that just a bit earlier in this text. These Jews who mocked him, who blasphemed him. You see, he still went forward and brought the gospel to them because he knew they needed it. The same is true of the Greeks. Do you remember what happened to the last group of Gentiles here in Acts? They started a riot. And Paul's friends had to almost physically hold Paul back from going there for fear he would be killed. What does that mean to us? Now, I don't expect on just an odd day 30,000 people to show up at Reliance Stadium. And I certainly don't expect them to stout start shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And I don't expect you to go down there and have to give an apologetic. But I do think it has meaning for us as we sit in these chairs today in Katy. You see, what it means is we cannot pick and choose whom we will minister to. Someone may come in and not have proper clothing. Someone may come in and not in our day and age, have ever heard of a Bible and not even know what an Old or a New Testament is. Others may come in and think that they know everything about everything and are more than willing to share it with every one of us. Some shrink back. Some start down the road and then say, oh, this is too difficult. All of these people are people that God places in our path. And we can't pick and choose whom the Gospel is for. This is one of the great comforts of the doctrine of election. We don't need to worry about whom God will save. God is in charge of that. All we need to do is be faithful in presenting the Gospel, in ministering to others, in declaring the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is for all of us. Because some of you here are 8, 9, 10 or 11. You go places I don't go. You have friends that I haven't met. You play baseball and soccer games that I'm not at. And so this is your opportunity to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Some of you think that your best days are past, that your energy level is down, But the Lord brings people in your path that He does not bring in mine. This is your opportunity to declare Jesus Christ in our world. This church is not an audience. It is an army. It is an army on a mission field that takes and declares the doctrine of the Gospel to the lost. And every one of us are enrolled in that army. And every one of us have to serve. And we all need to serve together. No one is too important. No one is too small. From the greatest to the least, we are called together to declare the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can't pick and choose what we will say. This is something else that is becoming far more common in the world today. Many of you have seen the controversy springing up over a denial of the doctrine of the reality of hell. That that's just so mean and nasty. And God's just, He 
He's just too loving to actually... God doesn't believe in hell. God gives everyone a second, third, fifth, tenth chance after they're dead. Of course. Somehow thinking that this helps people. It's, it's really the equivalent of a house being on fire, someone choking on smoke, trying to get up out of the chair, and you say, no, 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 sit down. It's so nice and warm in here. Nothing will happen to us. You're not doing anyone any good. And so Paul declares that he had to declare the whole counsel of God. Now, broadly speaking, that means that he declared all the truth of the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that he declared every truth in the Bible with equal amounts of fervor, equal amounts of time. There are some doctrines that are more core than others, but he did not shrink back from declaring anything that the Bible declared. If God said it, we are to repeat it. And specifically, he points to two core doctrines. Two core doctrines that are hated by the world. First, that we must have faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. We must trust another. We must lean on Jesus' work. No matter how many times we come to church, how many little old ladies we walk across the street, how many donations we make to charity, we cannot be made right with God. It is only by faith in Christ. And Paul declares that to the whole world. If you declare that, you will not be popular at the office. Now, you can declare it in such a way that you may still be loved, but you will not be popular. You may not even be popular in the church at large because it is limiting and it takes power and authority away from man and gives it where it belongs to Jesus. Faith in Christ. And the second specific doctrine that Paul says that he declared was that of repentance toward God. Repentance toward God. That we must leave our sins and go to God. Finally, Paul describes this as a calling to obey to obey even when it costs, even when there are tears involved, because he must follow the leading of the Spirit. Do you see what he says here? He says in verse 22, he is going to Jerusalem because he is constrained by the Spirit. He doesn't really want to go because he knows what's waiting for him are chains, imprisonment, and affliction. But he goes because he has to. You see, the actual word there for constrained is word that we get chains from later in that sentence. He was chained by the Holy Spirit. He had to follow God's will. He followed the leading of the Spirit. This is the calling that Paul had and that he describes to the elders at Ephesus. And it is from that calling that he can then speak with authority to give them a command. And this command is twofold. It is first, pay attention. And second, watch out. First, he tells them they must pay attention. And this attention must be twofold. He says, first, you must pay attention, elders, to yourselves. It has to start there. Elders, you must start by paying attention to yourselves. 
If you do not pay attention to yourselves, you will have no ministry to others. You must heed your own life before you look to others. Now, if you're standing here breathing a sigh of relief because you haven't been called to be an elder, then you need to know that fathers, it must start with you. Before you can minister to your wife or your children, you must pay attention to your own life. The same is true of mothers. In your calling to raise godly children, you cannot do that unless you first pay attention to your own walk with Jesus Christ. Our congregation must begin there. We cannot say, we're going to change Katie for the gospel. If we don't begin with ourselves, if we don't seek our own personal holiness. So what does this mean for elders, for fathers, for mothers, for our church? It means we must look to our own prayer life. Are you a praying person? Do you seek the Lord? Do you seek the Lord regularly? And not just in a daily quiet time, but in times of struggle is your first thought to the Lord. Seeking His counsel, His will, His support. How about Scripture reading? Are you devoted to the Bible? Do you know the Bible? Do you read it? Do you long to read it? Young children, do you long for the day when you can read and read quickly so that you can open up your Bibles whenever you want, even if mom or dad is busy, so you can dive into your Bible. This is where we must begin cultivating our own prayer life, our own Bible reading, our own longing for worship, our own love for Jesus Christ. We cannot present that to another if it is not real and tangible and substantial in ourselves. Paul calls them not only to pay attention to themselves, but he calls specifically to the elders to pay attention to the flock. And he lays quite a command upon them because he says the reason you are to do this is because the Holy Spirit has entrusted them to you. God the Holy Spirit has entrusted this flock to you. You will be held accountable. And so what does this mean for the elders? It means that they must be among the people. They must look to them first before they look to their own needs. They must seek God's guidance because it is the Lord who has placed this flock in their care. What does it mean for the congregation? It means two things. First, you must hold your elders accountable. They are your shepherds. But second, you must submit because they are placed in authority over you by the Lord Himself. It is not something that the church thought would be a good idea or that fits a chart. It is something that is done because this is how the Lord builds His church. Because you see, He knows that people are like sheep. We wander off. We go off on tangents. We are interrupted in our pursuit of Jesus by things in our life. And just as the shepherd must keep the sheep together, must keep the sheep moving, that is what elders are called to do. 
Secondly, Paul says, we are to watch out. Not just to pay attention, but we are to watch out. And again, this is specifically directed at the elders, but encompasses, I think, the congregation as well. We must watch out because there is danger. To keep with our sheep analogy, there are wolves. There are wolves from outside and there are wolves from inside. It seems a bit obvious that there are attackers from outside because we know that Satan hates the church. And there are obvious enemies that we see. Secularism, evolution, Islam, the cults. We expect them to attack us. And so we're a bit more on our guard. But we must always be on our guard. We must never let our guard down because those threats have been there all the time for the church and they will be until Jesus comes back. But another threat which I think oftentimes catches us more from, by surprise is the threat from within. It is less obvious, but there are threats that come from within the church. It is an interesting note of history that the greatest danger historically to the Presbyterian Church has been the Presbyterian Church. That is where heresies have come up. That is where the denial of Jesus as Lord and God has come from. That is where the denial that the Bible is the Word of God has come from. And we are even today in our very day, after having fought and, it seems, won the battle for the Bible, having in this last half of the last century declared the inerrancy of the Scriptures, declared that the Bible is the only true and infallible Word of God and that we can stand upon it and that we would never, ever, ever see this in evangelical circles again. We are at a point of reconstituting the Institute for Biblical Inerrancy. Because attacks have come from within our seminaries, from within our denominations on the Bible. We must always be vigilant because these attacks come all the time because Satan is always at work. We must keep up a constant vigilance, not just in the tough times, those of you that have children, do you only pay attention to what they're doing during storms? And you ignore them the rest of the time. They can run around the house, ramage in the cupboards, pick out knives, run around, throw vases, do things. Because, of course, there's no storm, there's no tornado, there's no earthquake. It's, it's safe. No, of course you don't. <laughs> you watch them like a hawk all the time, don't you? And sometimes when you hear a noise or something and your eye is not upon them, you get concerned and you rush to the situation. This is the way we are to treat the church. Not because we are afraid, not because we distrust God, but because we love the church. Just like we love our children. We watch out for it. We are God's hands and feet in the church. You see, we are to watch out. We are to pay attention. And this command is not just for Ephesian elders. It is for our elders, and it is for our fathers, and it is for our families. Well, Paul has given them a call. 
And He has given them a command. And He concludes, as you could imagine, with a comforting. Because He has just laid much upon them. And perhaps these Ephesian elders feel like you do. I can't measure up. I can't preach the Gospel everywhere. I can't protect us from threats everywhere. It's beyond me. I don't know what to do. Paul reminds them, first and foremost, that this is the Lord's work. Remember what the Lord has done. And so, he declares to them what he has done. That he has been faithful. That the Lord has blessed him. That the Lord has blessed his church. You see, godly examples are good for us when we feel overwhelmed. We see that God has been at work. This is perhaps one of the greatest purposes of church history. If you are depressed about the church today, read accounts of the great revivals. If you think we are being persecuted today, read accounts of Christians in the late Roman Empire. Be encouraged that God has not abandoned His people, that we are here today because God was with them then. He will not abandon us. He gives us godly patterns to do things. Paul says, remember to care for the weak. And this is historically what the church has done. And it is what we must do as well. How do you care for the weak? Are you concerned for those at the Pregnancy Help Center? Are you involved with those who are not sure what they will do with the child in their womb? Are you protecting them? Protecting the weak? Are you involved perhaps in tutoring children who are weak and need help? Are you involved in construction for people who cannot build for themselves? These are all opportunities we have to remember that the Lord is at work in our midst. And it's the very work that Jesus did. Paul reminds us of this when he says, remember what Jesus used to say, it's better to give than to receive. We remember what the Lord has done. Secondly, we seek the Lord in prayer. Do you see what Paul does here? After he's done all this speaking, he falls down on his knees and he prays with these elders. Why? Because prayer brings us together, doesn't it? Prayer comforts us, doesn't it? Prayer even equips us for what we have in front of us, doesn't it? This is why prayer is so essential to our lives and why prayer is such a comfort. If we feel weak, if we feel helpless, if we feel hopeless, it is prayer that will push us into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly and finally, we don't just remember the Lord's work, we don't just seek the Lord in prayer, we have to actually depend on the Lord. This is a conscious effort. We must not depend on man. And that goes beyond just ourselves. That goes actually to others. Paul is saying to these Ephesian elders, this is your task now. I won't see you again. And he doesn't say, I guess the church will fold soon. He says, you won't see me again. Now your task is before you. You pick up the mantle. And this is true for us as well. I think sometimes one of the faults that we have in reform circles is that we tend to lift up and almost hero-worship our stars. Now, we don't have Madonna. We don't have American Idol judges. 
But we have the conference preaching circuit. We're not sure what we can do, but if John Piper's somewhere, let's run. We're not sure what we can do, but if John MacArthur's somewhere, oh, oh wait, here's R.C. Sproul. Now, all of these men are godly servants of the Lord. And none of them, none of them desire to be worshipped as heroes. They're simply working as the Lord gives them strength. Just as Paul did. The task is ours. To learn from them, to hear from them, and then to act. And not to stand as a spectator saying that they will do all the work. The comfort here is that we are equipped by what God has given to us. We have the Lord God as our resource. We are the richest, most powerful people on earth because we are equipped and resourced by Jesus Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We also have God's Word. Do you see what Paul says here? He says, I commend you to God and to His Word of grace. Verse 32. Because that is what will build you up. It's the Word of God that is able. The Word of God is where God speaks. The Word of God is where grace is found. The Word of God is where we are built up. And we, beloved, have that same Word. It's a Word that will build us up. That we can meet our calling. That we can obey God's commands. That we can comfort others. Praise be to the Lord that He has given to us His Word and His Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would equip us to be a people that desire to serve You with all fervor, to know that You indeed are Lord and that we are Your people and that You have given us everything we need in Christ Jesus. Lord, make us a people desirous of Your Word and Your grace. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen.